Got any canvas? Line? I have got line. It's hair. No canvas. I'll take the line. Any seeds? Nope. Wood? Nope. Magazines? If I had a magazine. the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O, minutes at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 17 and 18, which begin with the Mariner arriving at the trading barge and end with Helen pouring the Mariner some pure hydro. We wrapped up last week with the Mariner walking to the trading barge and we pick up with him actually arriving in the little seating area and surveying it. I can only imagine what's going through his head, seeing that it's not as full and bustling as he would probably like as a representation of a trading area. Yeah, he was probably pointed in this direction by the banker, so he probably thinks he's lost. (laughs) Like he took a wrong turn at one of the barges, and he's like, wait, this isn't the trading barge. Maybe this is the lounge? Yeah, because everything looks the same to my eyes. Everything's the same color. Everything's the same architecture. Mm-hmm. So for me, it'd be really easy to walk right past the store. Isn't it one of the great tragedies of post-apocalyptic situations that often they lose access to things like paint and things to decorate structures to give them a splash of color and a bit of distinction from other heaps of junk and collections of metal? Yeah. First and foremost, in a post-apocalyptic setting, they don't necessarily want to stand out. But in this particular circumstance where you've got the atoll, it can't do anything but stand out. Yeah. It is a blob on top of a flat water. And there's no aircraft to notice it or not notice it from above. So I don't think any sort of camouflage needs exist here. They just don't have pigments. The Far Cry games are... Typically set in the real world, they feature a protagonist going up against a crazy guy who's in charge of an area and you go through and you liberate it bit by bit. Well, Far Cry New Dawn is a follow-up to the fifth Far Cry game, but it's set in a post-apocalypse. But this is a post-apocalypse where apparently paint is in numerous supply because the faction that you're going up against, they're called the Highwaymen, they spray paint everything, these bright, blues and pinks and magentas and yellows everything is painted and decorated up and it's one of the things that really helps distinguish it from other post-apocalyptic properties like the mad max video game for example (laughs) which is very rusty and brown and sandblasted yet society has great use of color perhaps the most important like you said is to distinguish between one faction and another that's incredibly important during some of the action sequences during this movie, there are times when I'm like, I don't know who is who. We have this identifier of people who are on powerboats and people who are not on powerboats, but sometimes that gets mixed up and I no longer can tell 
who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. So if I were in that fight, I have no idea. As soon as things devolve into hand-to-hand combat, yeah, it's all over as far as being able to follow the action. (laughs) But another important use of paint and color is signage. Mm -hmm. To label things for what they are. This store slash bar has no signage at all. And thus, the Mariner is questioning. Mm, I think he also asks, where's the store to be insulting, do you think? (laughs) Because once you look at the surroundings, there are shelves with a few items on it. There is a stack of water over to one side. There are dispensers for water on the wall. It's clearly a store. Not a well-stocked store, but it's clearly a store. So perhaps his asking is purposely to be insulting. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if that was a thing. I don't want to gloss over that as Kevin Costner approaches the bar, he's walking out the steps and he totally misses putting his foot fully on the step and his toe slips and the barfly reaches out as if to catch him. I am not fully convinced that that was on purpose. No, I think that was absolutely an accident. Something that I experience as a woman is driving in several different types of shoes. And they all have a different feel to the gas and the brake pedal. So when I get in the car with a different pair of shoes on, it takes a moment to adjust the positioning of my foot and how it relates to the pedals. On that same token... When you're walking up the stairs, how you have to move your feet is different depending on what kind of shoes you're wearing. So I absolutely believe that this was Kevin Costner wearing ski boots, which are not meant to be walked in, (laughs) catching his toe on the step. Yeah. Totally believable. It's so typical of the Mariner to play it off as if it didn't happen. Oh, yeah. He's so prideful and insular. That there's no way that he would joke it off or even thank the barfly. No. No. (laughs) It's small, but I saw it and I was like, oh my God, that's great. Getting up to the counter, you mentioned, he asks, is this the store? Specifically, Helen, who is doing her own thing. It's very Law & Order extra type acting where you're doing a thing, someone walks (laughs) up. And you keep doing that thing while they talk to you. I looked at Jean Triplehorn's IMDb. She's never actually been in an episode of Law & Order, but she's in the process of pouring water into a receptacle. And she just turns her head and says, help you. And he's like, yeah, where's the store? She's just like, you found it. (laughs) Yep. It reminds me of in Star Wars. I can't remember which one. You'll know the whole fly casual thing. Oh, yeah. She's working casual. The Mariner observes that they don't have much. He's a regular Sherlock Holmes. The tone of which he says, you don't have much. Is he trying to be casual or maybe flirty in a way? I'm wondering what your take on it is. In the novelization, before he enters the atoll, it mentions that he gussied himself up quite a bit. Like he's really trying to put his best foot forward. And the movie didn't really do that. They didn't show him cleaning up. They didn't show him putting on his best clothes. We got little hints of it. He attempted to clean his teeth. This is another hint of it. He's trying to be sociable. 
he's trying to be light. He realizes that this woman has a lot of power that he needs. She has the goods. She is going to set the price. Mm -hmm. She is going to decide what she is willing to sell him and not sell him. So I think the where's the store line (laughs) was meant to be a little jabby. But then he realized that she is the store and he lightened up a little bit. Would you like to hear how the book handles his approach? Oh, yeah. All right. As the Mariner stepped to the counter, Helen was careful to hide her interest in this stranger who'd brought that precious dirt to Oasis. Help you? She asked. Maybe you could direct me to the store. She knew how pitifully bare the shelves were behind her. Afraid you're looking at it, she said. I'll take all the hydro you've got in storage. She frowned. You'll close me down. You'd run out sooner or later, wouldn't you? Got any canvas? Any line? We got line, she said, but it's hair. No canvas. Any bread? No. Wood? Just the shelves on the wall, stranger. Oasis is what they call the atoll. Oh, okay. Something in there that piqued my interest was that she was trying to hide her interest in him. For the sake of negotiating power, I would think. You don't want to show too much interest. We also see in the beginning of this minute that he's being followed. Mm-hmm. The whole place has interest in him. So that drives me into the whole she's trying to work casual feel that we get from her during this introduction. Right. It's a sticky situation because she's absolutely right about him having enough capital on hand to clear her out, to completely shut down anything she has in storage. Yeah. And he's also right. What difference does it make if you get rid of it now or over the course of a week? You're getting the same amount of credits, so what does it matter? Mm -hmm. The insinuation that, give me all your water, you're just going to run out anyway, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't like how this movie handles pure water, because the more research I do about desalinating water, the easier it seems to become. Yeah, I mean, where did she get this water? She desalinated it. Yeah. So that's a renewable resource. I've mentioned this before, but when you look around the atoll and you see the giant sphere-shaped metal structure, that entire thing is a desalinator barge. That whole boat, I guess boat might be a strong word when it's all structured together into an atoll, makes it more than just a boat, but I digress. They should, in theory, be able to make so much fresh water that they really shouldn't have to worry about it. Something that occurs to me is that the water that she sells is surplus after rations have been taken. Oh, that's a good point. Because not all of their water is sold through her. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets what they need, and then surplus goes to her to sell. Or maybe she has to buy it. Is she an independent entrepreneur, or is this a company store? Mm. We don't really know. They really do not spend a lot of time talking about the economics of a closed system like the Atoll. It's so tricky because they are so strictly regulated for population. No one really stays for long term. The only sort of outside influence they get are these drifters that come over every so often. It's a mystery. On the surface, I like the company store idea that this is a group of people who all work commonly together. But then we know that there is a currency system involved, the credits. So There has to be some kind of merging of those two systems. I'm not really sure how that would work. And honestly, I don't know enough about different systems of governing to know which one is better. 
<laughs> I like the idea that this is an insulated group of people who have everything in common and take care of each other and there's enough for everybody. But people tend to rebel against that type of system. It's funny that we have so many questions and so many wonderings about a society that is going to be, for the most part, completely wiped off the face of the water. Yeah, like within 24 hours, they're going to be gone. So yeah. it does not really matter. <laughs> it is a grim outlook. It is. It is a very grim outlook. I think these things are worth wondering about anyways, because they do have relevancy in our world. Yeah. In our current political climate, we are fighting our system of government because some people think it's going too far one way and other people think it's going too far the other way. And so these words like socialism and fascism and democracy and republic, they come up a lot to us right now. So knowing about them and what they mean and how they actually function for the people is important. Plus, someday we're going to be post-apocalyptic. So, <laughs> I mean, we hope not to be. That's the idea. Right. I think the question is if our generation is going to be the post-apocalyptic ones or further generations down the line are going to be the post-apocalyptic ones. Somebody is going to be in a society that has drastically changed drastically changed someday so we might as well figure out how to do it yeah i guess <laughs> hey do you want to get to know gene Triplehorn a little bit i really really do she is my favorite actor in this movie so i am quite looking forward to the following discussion all right so Helen is played by Jean Triplehorn. According to IMDb, her top four are Basic Instinct from 1992, The Firm from 1993, Waterworld in 1995, and Sliding Doors in 1998. Jean Marie Triplehorn was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma on June 10, 1963. She developed an interest in performing through her father, guitarist Tom Triplehorn, who at one time recorded with the pop group Gary Lewis and the Playboys on such hits as this diamond ring. She graduated from Edison High School and began her career as a local radio and TV host. Educated at both the University of Tulsa and the drama division of the Juilliard School in New York City, Triplehorn made her major TV debut in a supporting role in The Perfect Tribute in 1991. The next year, she made a big splash in her second lead in Paul Verhoeven's thriller Basic Instinct. She earned a huge break when she replaced a pregnant Robin Wright in the role of Tom Cruise's wife in the box office smash The Firm. Her smart work in this film afforded her the opportunity to work opposite other top guns in the industry, including Kevin Costner in ah. The Futuristic Waterworld, Gwyneth Paltrow in Sliding Doors, and Hugh Grant in Mickey Blue Eyes. On stage, Triplehorn played the role of Masha in Anton Chekhov's The Three Sisters opposite Amy Irving and Lily Taylor. Prior to this, she appeared off-Broadway in John Patrick Shanley's The Big Funk in 1990, then co-starred with Val Kilmer in a 1993 production of John Ford's 1630s play Tis Pity She's a Whore. In 2002, Jean was one of a revolving door of guest stars to appear in the Actors Alley play The Guys, a tribute to the valiant firefighters of the 9-11 attacks. In the 1990s, she maintained a roller coaster relationship with actor-writer Ben Stiller. Engaged at one point in 1993, she even appeared on his early 90s TV show, The Ben Stiller Show. But the union broke up after six years, and in 2000, Jean married actor 
Leland Orser of TV's ER. They appeared together in the TV movie Brothers Keeper and the film Very Bad Things and Morning. the first being in 1998, the second being in 2010, the latter movie being written and directed by Orser himself. The couple has one son who was born in 2002. In more recent years, Triple Horn has played such roles as Barb Henriksen, the senior wife of polygamist Bill Paxson's three live-ins in the HBO drama Big Love. She played Jackie Kennedy Onassis in the TV movie Grey Gardens, Alex Blake in the series Criminal Minds, as well as Eleanor Schlafly in the political miniseries Mrs. America, starring Kate Blanchett. A few things that I know her from was... On my recent run-through of New Girl, she's on that show a couple times, I think like two or three episodes. Her character's name is Uli. And also, a surprise for me, a podcast that I listened to called Exeter, she plays the main character, Colleen. And it is a murder mystery investigative fiction work. Oh. It's got two seasons. They're very good. I blew right through them. And I think the intention is they're going to keep going. They're very recent. It was excellent. So yeah, it's called Exeter. I'm a big fan of Jean Triplehorns. I like that she has a distinctive look to her face. She's very beautiful. She's stunningly beautiful with those cheekbones. And she's so striking that she's easy to pick out of a cast. I probably know her best from Sliding Doors. She played the... To call her a villain is a strong word. <laughs> but she does some villainous things. She's not the villain of the movie, but she does some bad things. Mm-hmm. I can't say that I'm super familiar with any of the movies that were listed in her top four. I've never seen Basic Instinct. I've never seen The Firm. I think I've seen bits and pieces of Sliding Doors because you watched it Mm -hmm. and I was in the house at the time. Yeah. (laughs) She does seem to gravitate towards those heavy dramas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of surprised that Waterworld is one of her top four because she does have a great body of work. And Waterworld, while she was the co-star of Waterworld, eh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I just don't really imagine this movie as a top four type movie. Yeah, I'm looking at her IMDb list right now, and I'm not quite sure any of the other movies beside Waterworld really stand out to me as something I remember or recognize. But then again, hey, I'm probably not the person that you necessarily want dictating what's in your top four on IMDb. Yeah, she doesn't really seem to be an actress that is geared towards you. I will say, though, that there's a moment when she's putting the water up on the counter that we get a phenomenal look at her bicep. It is glorious. (laughs) You can tell that the character has been hauling around these large jugs of water. Because these are... A couple gallons, and a gallon of water is eight pounds. So there's at least 25 to 30 pounds for each of those. And she moves them around easy. She's got the arms for it. Okay, speaking of those containers of water, the Mariner, obviously, seeing that there's not much in the store, says that he will take all six Gs. And I'm assuming that a G is a gallon. Yeah, except these are more than a gallon. Yeah, I'm looking at them, and... A gallon of water is probably about half the size of those containers. Yeah, I'm thinking those are maybe three-gallon containers, and they're not full. No, certainly not full. There's at least two gallons of water in there, probably more like two and a half. 
I'm not a fan of how the water looks. No, nope, nope. It's yeah. definitely green. Well, we were talking last week about algae mm-hmm. and its place in water and its cleansing effects. And we supposed that they might have two different classifications of water, which we actually see a hint of when he asks for a cup of water. She starts going out of one jug and he says, no, no, pure hydro. And she goes to another jug. The other jug is much clearer. Oh, absolutely. Than the first one. So I think we were right. There are two classifications of water. Okay. I'm starting to think as I'm looking at these containers that they are only half full. So if they are two gallon containers, they probably only have one gallon in them. So it makes a little just, more no, sense. There's more than a gallon of water in there. So think of a gallon of milk. Yeah. Well, a gallon of milk in the standard milk jug form, its footprint is only maybe six by six. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a little bit bigger, maybe seven by seven. The footprint of these is more like a foot. Like a 12 by 12. Yeah. Like a 12 by 12. That's going to bring the water level way down sizing things up in three dimensions is wonky because the area scales totally different than when you're dealing with two dimensions if we wanted to do the math we could if these squares hard math if these squares were a solid 12 inches by 12 inches by 12 inches and there was only one gallon in there that water should probably be closer to a quarter full yeah i think so i don't know what he means by a g it's entirely possible that it's a completely different unit of measurement. Why on earth would they still be using our units of measurement? No other time so far have they used units of measurement that we have understood. Oh, the kilos. They kept that. But like distance is completely different. Mm-hmm. The metric system doesn't have any unit of measurement that I would label a G. So I don't think that's taken from our units of measurement i don't think it's a gallon also they could call it a gallon and it's not actually a gallon anymore it's not our gallon i should say it's their own version of a gallon i would assume though that it's based on weight i would assume a g is some sort of weight measurement okay that makes sense i was just thinking how plastic floats Mm -hmm. and so there Mm. were probably a lot of plastic milk jug sort of containers you know that what? were floating on top of the water that were scooped up by people who survived the deluge. That is very, very interesting because floating plastic and plastic in the water in general is a huge problem now. So you can go out into the ocean and you can find all sorts of trash yeah, in you've got the ocean. The... Nets and plastic bottles of various sorts and all kinds of stuff. So that trash would absolutely be a resource for these people. Can you imagine if someone in Waterworld were to find the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I would imagine that's probably used up by now. Whatever society was left when they decided, okay, we are leaving land because it's diminishing quickly. We are now boat people. When they made that transition, it probably would have been smart for them to gather around that, to have that as a place where this is our center now because it has resources that we're going to pick through and take and reuse. So I imagine the bulk of that probably would have been used up relatively quick. Now, finding a plastic jug floating in the water is probably more of a rarity hundreds of years down the road. Definitely more valuable at Mm -hmm. this point. Mm -hmm. Because I can't think of where else they would get 
containers like this. Yeah, and uniform containers. Mm-hmm. There are six of the same container of the same size. That seems kind of incredible to me. Oh, and when a ocean-going trader, a drifter, comes and buys water from you in this manner, is he buying the water and he has a container on his boat to pour the water into and return the vessels to you? Or is he buying the vessels as well? I'm pretty sure he's buying the vessels as well. Because that seems awfully valuable, those vessels. Yeah, when you think about it, what's more valuable, the renewable resource inside the container or the container itself when you can't get more containers on a regular basis? Yeah, coming up with clean potable water, it may not be the easiest thing, but it's doable. So it is renewable. And yeah, those plastic containers... I don't even understand. I don't understand how she even has six of the same container. (laughs) I think it would be much more realistic for a drifter of the Mariner style to have a cistern on his boat, Mm -hmm. pour the water that he purchases or makes into that cistern, probably two different cisterns, one for each quality of water, because you certainly don't want to mix them. I would love to see, in an atoll situation, a hose that comes off of the desalinator barge and down onto boats to fill cisterns. Kind of like how you have these water towers next to railroad tracks that they would use to pour water into steam locomotives. Yes! Well, that would suppose a certain level of surplus. And maybe they don't have that level of surplus. But also to your point about how the mariner should have a cistern to store his water in, if all he was using for water was that little filter system Mm -hmm. of his, that's not a lot of water to hold in reserve. Like I looked, according to the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the average man should have 3.7 liters of fluid a day and the average woman should have 2.7 liters of fluid a day. And that covers both the water that you drink and the food that you eat. Mm -hmm. So if you eat something that is moist, that counts as fluids that your body can extract from it. If you're eating nothing but dry rice, then there's not a lot of fluid in there, so it doesn't count as much. (laughs) But you get the idea. Yeah. About 20% of daily fluid intake comes from food. So take the numbers I said, bump it down to 80% of that total, and that's the water. That's a lot of water. Three liters is a lot of water. 3.7 liters is essentially a gallon. When people say eight glasses of water a day, a glass is typically eight ounces. That's 64 ounces. That's a gallon. Yes. And we've discussed in the past that you can get by on two liters of water a day, but it's not as recommended as going beyond that. Mm -hmm. And these people generally do seem quite healthy. So I think they're getting their three plus liters a day, Mm -hmm. including the Mariner. He seems quite healthy. (laughs) He's definitely not as sickly as the guy trying to sell his hair. Right. So water is not the only thing that the Mariner wants to buy. He asks about canvas and line. Helen's got rope made out of hair. No canvas. I had to check and see canvas is classified as any firm, closely woven cloth, usually of linen, hemp, or cotton. So there's no great distinction of, oh, canvas is a very specific material. 
woven into a sheet. No, it can be pretty much anything as long as it's firm, closely woven cloth. Okay. Which is ideal for catching wind. Mm -hmm. In the book, the wording on this conversation when he asks about line, rope, or canvas, she replies, I've got line, but it's hair. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? Yes. So she makes it sound like hair is a less desirable form of rope. Do you get that vibe from the book? I definitely get that vibe from the book and also from the movie. You do? Yeah. The research that I did into hair rope, I talked about it several weeks ago. Yeah. The guy on YouTube who cut his hair off and put it into string. It's just not as aesthetically nice as regular rope. It doesn't give you the sense of strength that a manufactured rope does. For one thing, professional manufactured line usually has a core made out of one fabric and then a outer shell made out of a different material. So you get that two-layer effect and it's very tight and it stays clean. Hair rope, it tends to fray out and not look as nice. So I imagine if your entire rigging system is made up of hair line, it doesn't look as good. When you compare it to a standard manufactured line, yeah, I definitely see that hair is not as desirable. Okay, yeah, I'm on board. There's a lot of things to be said for rope made out of hair. It's got a little bit of give to it, so it's a little stretchy, it's waterproof, but when it comes to aesthetics, I know I've said it before, I'll say it again, can't beat that manufactured stuff. And we do at some point Oh, is it this set of minutes or is it next week's set of minutes? We get a good look at coiled up piece. She slaps it on top of the stack of water. We do get a pretty good look at it. Yeah. I think that's next week. It is next week. Yeah. Because she doesn't fetch the line until after she pours him a drink. But he keeps asking about different things. Mm -hmm. He asks about seeds. Nope. And he would. No. And I find it interesting. They've got the one big tree on the atoll, but I'm not sure where else they would necessarily get wood. Well, wood also floats. That's true. They would find it drifting around, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Originally, probably a lot of it, which, I mean, her structure seems to be largely made of wood. Uh, well, actually, no, no, never mind. I take that back. It's not really. It's largely made of metal, which is interesting. I suppose they got most of their metal from ships that no longer functioned. Like they probably used to live on those ships and then the ships no longer functioned. So they lashed them together into an atoll. But yeah, wood floats. So I would think that there would be lots of floating wood around. And then even over time, do you think root systems would rot out of submerged trees and then they would let go and float up to the top? I know that a lot of the layers of sediment around the world, you can see this used to be a forest, then it was submerged because you can see all of this mucky organic stuff that disintegrated over time and made a layer of sediment. So you can tell that this dry lake bed at one point was forested and then was submerged by a lake and then the lake went away and now it's just a salt flat. You can tell that kind of stuff. So maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe the roots hang on while the trees disintegrate and make a layer. So I'm looking at an article on the Associated Press, which I usually trust implicitly because they are just the Associated Press. They're very neutral on most things. And this article is about how flooding affects trees. Flooding harms trees by depleting oxygen levels in the soil. 
Roots need oxygen for growth and respiration. When oxygen is depleted in flooded or saturated soils, this leads to root death, buildup of toxic compounds in a tree, and reduced nutrient uptake. However, if flooding occurs during the dormant season when the trees are not actively growing, they tolerate it a lot better, especially because some trees, their roots sort of band together and add for extra structural support. Because not only do floodwaters deprive the soil of oxygen, they also tend to move that soil out of the way. It speeds up erosion. So it would make sense that if the ground were to wash away under a tree, you would see that situation where a tree would then float to the surface. Mm -hmm. It makes sense for sure. So the tree would only float if it wasn't already completely saturated by water. So there's plenty of, I'm just thinking about like lakes and rivers and stuff. There's plenty of wood that's just hanging out on the bottom Mm -hmm. because it's saturated by water. But then there's plenty of like driftwood that washes up on shore that is floating wood. So I think you're going to get both categories of floating and sinking, Mm -hmm. but there's an awful lot of wood on this planet. So if half of it floats, that's still a lot of wood for them. Mm -hmm. And just think, even for starters, all of the wood that is just laying around on the ground in forested areas, that's, that's a lot of material that as the floodwaters rise are just going to lift up with it. I think you would be hard pressed most of all to find a hardwood floor in this world. For sure. For sure. I don't think you're going to find a lot of milled planks or anything like that. Okay. So the subject of wood structures, like our house, is a wood frame building. So how long is this building going to last under floodwaters? Uh, Certainly not 500 years. It's going to disintegrate and become structurally unsound probably pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And wood that is used for building structures is pressure treated, right? Does that mean it floats or does that mean it sinks? I think it means that it floats because pressure treating is all about weatherproofing. That's right. It's about keeping the water out. Mm -hmm. So there should be lots of like building materials, wood floating to the surface. There should be a lot of wood in this world. (laughs) (laughs) A lot. However much wood there should be, there's no wood here on the atoll. And the Mariner continues asking about magazines, and Helen says something that confuses me. She says, if I had a magazine, I'd retire. Yeah. And the line confuses me because we see later on, Gregor has a whole phone book. If it's the paper that's valuable, then there's already a lot of paper in this atoll. I think there is value to the paper. I think there's a lot of value to the paper. I think there's also value to the item as a whole of a magazine, something that is relatively complete, something that is an artifact of a time gone by. I think it's both. Yeah, we're going to see later on that the Mariner also already has a collection of magazines. Mm -hmm. And if they are so valuable that someone could, quote, retire on an atoll by just having one magazine... Why trade in dirt when you can just trade in a magazine? Yeah, there is a point of view that he is asking about the magazines to make it sound like he is interested in the same things that everybody else is interested in. That if a magazine were available, he has the currency to purchase it. (laughs) But it's something that's so unnecessary to his own personal survival. It is a luxury item and it surprises her. 
<laughs> it doesn't really seem to be a good covering my reputation question. Mm-hmm. Not like the other things he asks for. Of course he wants wood and line and canvas. Those are necessities. <sighs> Magazine, I don't, know, I don't know. Maybe it was a dumb question. It shows that people are so starved for something new, something novel, something entertaining in this world that they will pay anything to get their hands on a magazine. That point of view definitely sparks awareness in me that we take our level of available entertainment for granted. I think every time the Wi-Fi goes down, that becomes incredibly apparent. We had no power for... A little less than 24 hours a couple of weeks ago for a tropical storm that came through. It was rough. It was embarrassingly rough. Well, it was also rough because the pump that feeds the water for the house is electric. Yes. So we had no water. We had no air conditioning. It was rough in many ways. Honestly, (laughs) the hardest part was that we had no entertainment. Especially once it got dark. Right. It was a weekday, so I had to call out of work. I couldn't work. So during the day, I read for a little while, but I still had to be next to a window to read. And then once it got even a little bit dark, it was done. The Mariner does this move where the Barfly has not shifted his position since the Mariner has arrived. I want to talk about this. And the Mariner takes his hand, puts it on the Barfly's shoulder, and physically pushes the man away. And I will admit, the Barfly is essentially leaning over the Mariner, but the Mariner put himself in that position. Exactly! The Barfly was there first! Yeah. This is a situation where there are three urinals, and the Barfly was using, let's say, the leftmost urinal, and the Mariner came in to use the center urinal. That's the Mariner's fault right there. Absolutely. That is a long counter. He did not have to saddle up right to the middle of it. He could have moved to the other end. If he didn't want to be social, he shouldn't have stepped up right next to the stranger. It drives me nuts. It just drives home that he is an asshole. Mm -hmm. And the way he does it, he physically pushes the man. It's incredibly rude. He didn't say, hey, can I have some space? Honestly, he should have moved himself. It would have been rude even if he said, hey, can I have some space? It's just, oh. I hate it so much. I hate it so much. (laughs) It's a classic example of the Mariner just being a terrible person. So Helen offers him something to drink. He asks for a cup of hydro and she puts out a little dish of what look to be biscuits or cookies. And I like that bars in this world are still doing that. You give someone something salty to munch on like peanuts or pretzels and it makes your patron thirsty. So they order more drinks. (laughs) And Helen goes over to the water dispenser and she's about to pour him what I assume is the standard grade of drink and he specifies pure. And Helen does this move where she throws up her hand a little bit and steps over to the pure thing. And I've worked retail before. I know that customers can be trying at times, but I find it hard to fault the Mariner on this one because as the retailer, it's essentially her job to clarify which grade of water he was asking for. Yeah. Like one time I was at a restaurant and I'm a water drinker. I don't drink soda a lot. So I asked for water with my meal and she asked me, do you want bottled water or tap water? I was like, I'll take tap water. I'm good with tap water, which 
was an appropriate question because tap water is free. Bottled water costs. So it's an appropriate question. And if she had just brought me a bottle of water, I would have been like, no, no, no. I'm not paying for water. I'm good with tap water. So it was an appropriate question for her to ask. Side note, she did ask in a very condescending way. Like, oh, because I drink tap water, I'm dirty. (laughs) But that's beside the point. (laughs) At the tail end of these minutes, we see the Nord. He's sitting by. He's watching this interaction that the Mariner is having with Helen. And he rises to his feet and starts moving towards the counter. And meanwhile, Helen is corking the container. She returns to the counter. She uses her little ladle to fill up the Mariner's drink. And we end with the Nord approaching the counter. So we'll get to see that interaction next time. The Nord is going to try to make friendly with the Mariner, and we'll finally get to see this little girl that the Hydroholic was talking about the other week. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 9. See you next time.